Listener supported. WNYC Studios. WQXR. In conversation. In this time, what we see is the democratization of this threat. So the existential and true human issues and health issues that our musicians face are exactly what the public faces. Now, for us, there's an additional kind of layer of sadness, which is that what is critical to our long-term survival is our interaction with our public. It's with performing live music in a, in a hall for living people, played by other living people. And right now we're doing everything we can to reach out and to communicate and to provide solace. But long-term, when we see the future, what it needs to really re-embrace when people are comfortable doing that is that interaction, that magic of when you go into a concert hall and you hear the New York Philharmonic. So just in case you haven't heard, New York City's breakneck pace has slowed to a crawl. The New York Minute has become the New York Hour. And all across the city, a mighty handful of venerable institutions have been forced to embrace the sound of silence. And that includes the New York Philharmonic. So we sat down with Deborah Borda, the orchestra's president and CEO, to see how her leadership is being tested by this unprecedented moment. The New York Phil was poised for a pretty busy second half of the season. They were wrapping up Project 19, which was their initiative that featured 19 different female composers composing 19 new works for the orchestra. And then there was a pretty extensive Europe and Asia tour, which has since been put on hold. And on top of all of that, they had just announced new renovations to be made to David Geffen Hall. Now, those renovations are still a couple of years off, but we were curious to know whether or not this current situation impacts that much-anticipated future. I'm James Bennett II, and this is WQXR Classical New York, in conversation with Deborah Borda. say is the most challenging aspect for you guiding and leading both the musicians of the Philharmonic and the public during this time? Well, first of all, I'm going to give you a sort of technical answer because I just had one of the most remarkable 10 days of my professional life. Here's what happened. We had our final concert on March 10th, Louis Longueuil conducting the New York Philharmonic in David Geffen Hall. On March 12th, we were scheduled to have our next concert with uh, Valery Gergiev. Uh, we came to realize by Wednesday, Thursday morning, that it simply was not in the public interest or safe to have these concerts. Now, we hadn't been shut down, but together, talking with my friend Peter Gelb at the Met and with Lincoln Center and Clive Gillinson at Carnegie Hall, we made a collective decision that although we were not ordered to, we would shut down. So we shut down at that time through, we would say, the end of March. Um, shortly after that, we sat with our musicians and talked about what the future would look like because clearly many, many matters way beyond anybody's control were happening. And that was another strange thing about this, the exponential rate of change. Uh, as I said before, we didn't have a playbook. Nothing has ever happened um, or developed so fast. So 
the musicians were fantastic. We sat there, we telephonically negotiated a new way forward in which they were tremendously helpful and actually provided the material so that we could launch our new portal on our website, New York Phil Plays On, so that we can actually stay in touch with, um, with our audience and with other, not just our audience, but with everybody. So we shut down in the middle of March. We soon realized we wouldn't be able to come back so very soon. So we finally made the very difficult decision that we would cancel the rest of our subscription season, which meant that we could focus and be nimble on what was to come. We canceled our European tour. We moved our offices to remote. We had a board meeting. We learned how to work together on Zoom. I speak to Yap every day. And this was, this was one of the most really uh, fascinating and challenging 10 days. And to see how people came together and worked together, uh, it, was, it was very, very moving. So that's on a technical basis. Uh, how my life has changed and many of our lives have changed. I'm on the phone from 8.30 in the morning till about 8 at night, trying to figure, you know, what is a viable path forward? What are the, what are the right interim operating plans? Because every day things change. So I guess, you know, what I wanted to ask you is if you had to pick one thing, and if that's simplifying it too much, then please correct me. But what do you think is the most important responsibility that an organization like the New York Phil owes its musicians at a time like this? Well, to support them, as we have. Um, other organizations made a decision um, that they would not be able to support their musicians for more than the next two weeks. Uh, as you've probably read in the New York Times and in other publications, that we are supporting our musicians, first of all, with health care through September, full health care, and also that we have negotiated a contract where they are being paid right now absolutely through April. They've been at full pay in the month of March. It will be paid in April and in May at a somewhat reduced amount. And we're figuring a path forward from there because, you know, you ask what's important right now in leadership. I think communication is important and getting people to be able to coalesce around goals and a vision for the future because there will be a future <laughs> sometimes it doesn't feel like it but there will be and i always like to say that the future is something we invent and so what we've got to think about is how do we invent a future new york philharmonic because when we come back after this and we will come back it will be a different time our world will have changed so one of the things i've said quite a bit and it's been quoted is the new york philharmonic survived the civil war two world wars and the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic. And we will survive this. We will carry on. Right, right. But, you know, as we know, right, the, the New York Phil is bigger than the musicians, too. You know, there's the administrators that work, I guess, behind the scenes in the offices of the Philharmonic, like you said, are now remote. What does leadership look like for them as well? What, what is their kind of, I guess, you know, prognosis during this period? What represents leadership at this time is the way the musicians of the Philharmonic have come together with us to launch this website, to engage in productive and creative thoughts. It's the way our staff has come together, working from remote locations to actually pull together the kinds of you know, financial modeling we need to figure out how to get to the future, how to deal with the many people who have bought tickets and are trying to figure out what to do, how to creatively launch and design a website this, is, this has been a remarkable team effort. And finally, I would say our board of directors. We had a full meeting, telephonic meeting of the board of directors 
because they had to make some very important decisions with us about the way forward and, and their profound position and strong position was to support the musicians and the staff as we go forward and try to figure out, James, what, what is a viable path to the future because it will not be the same as it was. Yeah, so actually, let's talk about the future for a minute. The the Philharmonic is establishing itself in a digital space. You have these performances that you can watch, uh, things that have been made available for free, which is awesome. Um, and so I wanted to know, do you think that this can continue on past this particular moment? I think people are going to be so happy to get back into the concert hall, to be with other people, to embrace living music, live sound. I think it's a wonderful thing. I think it's provided fantastic content during this period. I think it will continue, but nothing can replace a live concert. And and if something, if we actually thought something else replaced it, we wouldn't have a New York Philharmonic, would we? So another thing I wanted to bring up, too, is that, you know, the the David Geffen Hall renovations were slated to begin in 2022. And I wanted to ask you if um, everything going on now has had any impact on that timeline. Well, it's interesting. It's as you say, the, the actual opening is four years away. Some of the early construction begins in two years. This has been a very, very active period for us because we're in design phase right now. So we are, we are optimists. We are looking at the future. Think of all the jobs that this construction program will undertake and the, the work it will give to people. Think of all the different things around that as we're living in a recovering New York. So we remain positive about it. You know, I was talking to um, a professor at NYU about how this has impacted the performing arts landscape. And she described it as a black swan event, something massive that shifts the paradigm. A lot of organizations can't prepare for because you can't imagine something like that happening on that scale. So what I wanted to know from you is um, what has this taught you and leadership at the Philharmonic about preparedness for this kind of event? Will anything change after this? Does this impact, I guess, your own way of expecting the unexpected. First of all, James, nobody could have prepared for this. This is this is an event that is taking place in our history that is, we could say, is analogous to World War II. Um, it's, it's a difficult thing to say. It may be bigger than 9-11. Um, this, is, this is a watershed time for our country. And we will look back. This time and our generations will be defined by this. So how do you prepare for this? Um, this wasn't exactly a sneak attack. But I want to talk about another way that I think the New York Philharmonic has actually prepared for this already, and that's in an aesthetic, in a musical sense. Um, as you know, we have increased, uh, since uh, Yap and I came to the Philharmonic, we have been very, very 
cognizant of planning what we call pillars or initiatives each season that are designed around issues of social context. Last year, we did uh, a, a, a series around immigration and what that has meant to New York, New York City stories, threads of our city. We did uh, Julia Wolf's big piece, Fire in My Mouth, our music of conscience, where we had the premiere of David Lang's opera, Prisoner of the State, which deals with the issue of mass incarceration. So think about, in a way, as we look forward to the future, I think we can program very meaningfully and in that way and even expand upon it. And think about how composers have responded throughout history um, to these kinds of momentous occasions. Now, right now, as you know, we're in the midst of Project 19, which is the single largest commissioning program ever undertaken by any institution for 19 women composers to write world premieres for the New York Philharmonic in honor of the 19th Amendment, the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Think of how these might change. Think of the context that these will be written in. So I think a new collective aesthetic, a new collective emotion will come out of this. And I feel like this is in our lifeblood. I feel you know, we are well positioned to really reach out to people and help them in this time, not just musically, but emotionally and intellectually. Back in February, 2020, I believe you told NPR that the one of the whole ideas of Project 19 was um, to quote, look at this 100 years later and think about some of the strides that women have made, but also some of the strides they have not made. And that taking these 19 commissions, putting them front and center at one of New York's, you know, I guess, premier um, orchestral uh, ensembles. Does the season on hold now? push some of those premieres into the 2021 season? Well, we, uh, of course, had already announced our season. And right now, there are three premieres that were left in this season. So we'll have to figure out how to reprogram that. I think it's fair to say that we'll be thinking a lot about if there are changes that we think will help our audience and our orchestra next season. You know, this is very early in the game. And there's a lot to think about. And I think one of the things that we get tempted into doing in these kinds of interviews, and you've been very nice and you're not doing that, but is we're tempted to give answers to issues we don't really know the answers to. And right now, I think honesty, I think humanity, I think, you know, being able to say we don't know quite what the future holds, we'll work with it, we'll do our best. That's, that's how I feel about it now. So I don't have a pat answer for you. I mean, we'll remain committed to these kinds of initiatives as, as we have been in the past. What I wanted to ask you kind of straight, if I could, I think a lot of people are curious about the process by which uh, certain pieces get programmed, what gets chosen for what particular night, for what particular season. So I wanted to know if you could just share some insight onto what that looks like. How do you, how do you decide? What, what's, the, what's the process for that? Well, it's a, it's a very complex process. First of all, there's a team that does it, and that team is our music director, Japan Sweden, our vice president for artistic planning, Isaac Thompson, and myself. And I have to say, for the three of us, this is one of our greatest joys, because we sit down and we dream. We dream about what could be, what we want to do, and then we balance that with a lot of very realistic needs. Um, for example, if we're going to be touring, how do we prepare 
the, uh, the, the repertoire that we're going to tour, we're going to be recording, how to prepare the repertoire that we're going to record. Um, commissions is a very important part of what we do. So think about that. We also start off very generally by de de deciding what are the major, we call them pillars of our season that we will build around. So this planning takes place Oh, at least two seasons in advance. That's not as bad as the opera world. They have to plan, I think, four years in advance, but we can we can still hang in there with two. And it's so it's a, a shifting kaleidoscope of needs, um, balancing adventurous repertoire with uh, some of the meat and potatoes things people want to hear. Finding the very greatest artists in the world, the ones everybody knows their name, but also presenting new artists. Also for us, very important to commit to on the conducting podium to make sure that we are mindful of inviting women to conduct and in changing that entire, that entire uh, spectrum. And then of course, how we fit in all of our other educational activities. So it's complicated, but it's fun. I'm glad you actually brought that up too about, you know, the meat and potatoes balancing with some of the, uh, the newer stuff, your initiatives to get more women conducting. I guess what I want to follow that up with is what does progress look like? What does the rate of progress look like? How does that factor into things? Can you, can you speak to that? I always resist uh, when people say, what's the ROI on your institution? You know, what's the quantification of what you're doing right? What's, what's, the rate of, uh, what's the rate of return? Here's what I think. If we are mindful and have a significant number of women, and that's three to four right now on the podium, and for example, in our youth concerts, very often those are conducted by women so that the first time a young boy or girl comes into the hall, who they see conducting is a woman. So it never seems strange to them. That's the very first person that they see. Um, thinking about things in that way, thinking about the right balance. I mean, one of the things we found in our, in our surveys was that less than 3% of the music performed on concert stages was written by women. Well, we've completely blown that statistic out of the water. Um, but, you know, statistics mean one thing. What's more important to me is, have we got the centrality of the art right? Are we contributing to the evolution of the symphony orchestra in the 21st century? One of the last things I wanted to ask you is, uh, what is something that you wish the public knew about arts administration? What I wish the public knew about arts administration is how dedicated the behind the scenes administrators are, how hard they work, uh, and how dedicated they are to these institutions. And it is doing these jobs, they're not nine to five jobs. We live these jobs, it's a way of life. And we choose this way of life and we love it. But it's, it's something that we hope is really critical for the future survival, not just the survival, but for our institutions to thrive, to really thrive in the 21st century. When we were talking about, you know, the possibilities and the future and, and, and your vision, what do you want the Philharmonic to look, to sound, to feel like in 15 years? And I want you to take that however you want it. I, I don't want to tell you what exactly I mean by look or feel or sound. What, what do you want that to be in 15 years? I want it to be a vibrant institution that is really integrated into the fabric of the community in hearts and in minds. I want it to be an institution that has deftly balanced finding the intersection between the artistic imperative and the social imperative. I want it to be an institution that is about 
music of our time and very much of our time. Those are just some of the things. Beyond that, we'll invent it as we go. That was my guest, Deborah Boredom. She's the president and CEO of the New York Philharmonic. This episode was produced by me, James Bennett II, with Rosa Gollin, and our EP is Lucas Krohn Grimberga. <laughs>